Most of us have had the uh, scary experience of driving in snow or on ice where you felt like you were not in control of your vehicle. It's really a very scary feeling when you realize you can't stop or the car's gonna do whatever it's going to do and you just kinda have to go along with it and pray you don't hit anything or whatever else. For me, the worst day of driving, the scariest occasion for me ever occurred the day after I moved to Morgantown, West Virginia in 1985. I had driven here with uh, Scott Rupley, who was co-leading the team to plant the church here. We had put all of our earthly belongings in the back of a pickup truck that a friend had loaned us. We made our way to Morgantown and unloaded the truck for that evening. 13 inches of snow fell on downtown Morgantown. My thought was, wow, they get a lot of snow here. I had promised the owner of the truck, though, that I would drive it back the next day. He needed it. And so I jumped in the car and I began this trip. It wasn't until I got to the highway that I understood for the first time that this truck had some issues. Uh, for example, on this particular occasion, because of the snow, one lane was completely unplowed. The other lane that I was driving on, all I could see were two ribbons of pavement, and I tried to stay in those ribbons of pavement, but because there was no weight in the back of the truck, I found that I was kind of fishtailing a little bit, especially because the tires were bald, and every time a pickup or a, a semi came behind me and got impatient with the fact I was only going 35 on the expressway. I don't know why they were upset about that. But they passed me on the unpaved part of the road and I would feel the truck kind of moving like this and it was really, really scary. And then I noticed that under every single bridge there were two strips of ice. And once again, I just hold it straight like this as I went under the bridges and I would pray that I didn't go under a bridge at the same moment a semi was passing because I figured that would send me in a tailspin. Now I should not have even taken the trip. But I, I was gonna do it. I lived in Chicago, I'm used to driving in snow. This was not a good, this was not a good trip. Then something happened that had never happened to me before. As I was going down one of the hills, suddenly the accelerator stuck. And the pickup truck began to pick up speed, 30, 40, 50, 60. And then what am I supposed to do here? I couldn't apply the brakes. I tapped on the accelerator hoping it would unstick it and thankfully it did, but not before it really scared me. And shortly after that, I, I pulled off to get some gas and to collect my nerves. After I had filled up the tank with gas, I went to start the truck and it was dead, which should have been a sign. There was a hotel right by the gas station. It's like, this should be a sign, and, and hardly anyone was out, and so I, I figured I might even be stuck at the gas station, but the guy next to me saw my problem, said, I'll jump it for you, and, and I continued on my trip. Then the accelerator stuck a second time. And this time, when I went to hit the accelerator, the pedal there, it did not slow down. I was going so fast. I felt like uh, the only time I went skiing 
if you've ever been skiing before, you know sometimes you start going down and you're going so fast, and I, think, I don't know what to do, and then you just kind of crash. Well, that's, what it, I, that's what it felt like was gonna happen. I'm going down this hill, it's going faster and faster and faster and faster. It did not come off when I hit the pedal. And so I stuck it in neutral while driving. And the engine revved really loudly. I thought, I'm going to blow the thing up here, but it worked. And I slowed down, and, and then it did it a third time as well. I should have stopped. But I, I didn't stop. Shouldn't have been driving the thing at all. It wasn't trustworthy. It wasn't reliable. I didn't mention the fact that there was a problem with the mirrors. Because the truck had a cap in the back, the rear view mirror, I could not see out of it at all. And then one of the mirrors was completely missing, one of the side mirrors, and the other mirror was cracked. Only the bottom part was there. And so I was driving kind of blindly anyway. But all of that was still okay. I went on mile after mile. I was praying the whole way, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. No more pick or semi-trucks passing, on and on. Every single mile was a celebration. Thank you, Lord, another mile, another mile. It really was like that. It was very, very painful. And I almost made it to Columbus before I discovered something else. Because it had snowed so much, a cold front had come in. It was incredibly cold outside. The snow had been dry. But as I got close to the city there, they had salted the roads. That's a novel idea, by the way. But they had salted the roads, and then is when I discovered that I didn't have wipers. The wipers didn't work. I thought, I can't believe this. And so cars were starting to pass, and they were kind of spraying the windshield there. And the problem was I was driving west, and the sun was setting, and suddenly it was glowing. My, my view, I could hardly see out the front of it. And then the worst thing that I could have imagined happened at that point. I was in the middle lane on I-70. I had crossed through 470 around the beltway, Cars passed me on both sides at the same time. They sprayed the windshield and I could see nothing. I'm not exaggerating, I could see absolutely nothing, zero. I'm driving blind, holding straight, hoping the road doesn't turn, like what am I supposed to do here? I don't know what to do here. Couldn't see out the mirrors, couldn't see anything. I rolled down the driver's side window and stuck my head out. And then I thought, how am I going to get over, though? I've got to get, I got to park this thing. And I figured there's no way to know if anyone's behind me or beside me. I just had no idea. So I put on the turn signal, and I, with my head out over here, but I couldn't see over there, I just slowly made my way over and drifted off to the side of the road on the berm and parked it. And then I could at least clean the windshield with what I had, which was snow. I didn't have any rags or anything with me. I had nothing to clean the windshield, so I took the snow and was trying to clean the windshield and prayed that I'd make it to my destination. Now, why am I telling you this story? I made, I made it. A trip that takes three and a half hours took eight painful hours. I figure I lost a year of my life <laughs> on that trip. I should have stopped. Our faith is only as good as the thing in which it's placed. 
It's only as good as whether or not that thing you're trusting in is reliable, whether it's trustworthy or not. This truck was not trustworthy. I was angry with the guy that had loaned it to me. I appreciated the fact he would loan it, but I was angry. Bad tires, swerving, no wipers, broken mirrors, a car that stuck, an accelerator that stuck. It was a death trap. And when we trust in something that's not reliable, we can, sometimes we can just get by or it could hurt us pretty badly because we trusted in something we thought was reliable and it was not. This truck was not reliable. I made it to my destination not because it was reliable. I made it because God is reliable. The truck was horrible. Today I want to talk about putting our trust in the right place putting it in Jesus. He alone is completely reliable. And recognizing that it is again important that the object of our trust be Jesus because of who he is. Because of who he is, we can, we can really trust him completely, but sometimes we even think we're trusting in Jesus and we're not. For example, let me give you a situation. Sometimes people are praying that God will heal them but they get really, really distressed about the fact that they're not sure they have enough faith. And many times the problem is their faith is in their own faith, their faith is not in Christ. And that makes a huge difference. And so people are trying to muster up faith. No, what you need is a tiny bit of faith, but it needs to be in the right place. Now God doesn't always promise he's gonna heal. But oftentimes we beat ourselves up thinking, well, I just I need to have faith and they're trusting in their own faith instead of trusting in Jesus who's able to help us. A mustard seed of faith planted in the right place is the thing that accomplishes things. My point is that faith is not, doesn't really help us. I mean, people say, well, just have faith. No, no, just having faith is not enough. Having faith in the right place is the key. That's the thing that matters, and I'm gonna suggest today it's Jesus, and I'm gonna give you some reasons why. But last week, we talked about uh, the first chapter of the book of Colossians. We began this series, and I made the point that when you put your trust in Christ, he changes everything. Really, he changes everything. But Paul mentioned five things that change when you put your trust in Christ. One, you get a new identity. You become one of God's holy ones, one of his set-apart ones. The word that Paul used was saints. You are placed into a new family where God becomes your heavenly father and we become brothers and sisters with one another. For some, it's the family maybe you never had. You get a new eternal destiny, heaven. And that's the assurance that we have. You are placed within a new kingdom. When you put your trust in Christ, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the devil's kingdom, into the kingdom of light, which is Christ's kingdom, and then you get a new beginning. Well, after Paul discussed all these things, he began to lay out why these changes were possible and why we should put our trust in Jesus alone because he can really help us. And with that introduction, I'd like to begin reading in Galatians 1 and verse 15. Where we read, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, through Jesus, and for him. 
He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul mentions seven characteristics of Jesus that lay a case for the fact that he's fully trustworthy. He needs to be the object of our trust. I want to briefly talk about him. The first one is he mentions that Jesus was God in the flesh. Verse 15 again, he says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Paul was saying that although God is invisible, he's spirit, Christ is God, the physical manifestation of God, flesh and blood. Dr. Norman Geisler explains Christ is the perfect visible representation and manifestation of God. The word image, icon, means the very substance or essential embodiment of something or some. One. In all of his essence, Jesus was God. This is a, a remarkable thought if you realize that for three years, Jesus' closest friends walked with Jesus. They did not understand this. And I love what it says about Jesus because I think he could have been really picky when it comes to pointing out things related to those guys. Like they were a little bit of a mess really rough around the edges, and yet Jesus was hanging around them, was fine to be in their presence and walk with them. And he addressed things that mattered. He ignored things that did not matter. That's the way our God is. They had no idea that he was God until it came toward the end. On one occasion, toward the end of his ministry, Jesus was talking with his disciples, and he, he said in John 14 and verse 9, he said, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, just before he said that, he had said something about showing them the Father. And Philip, one of the disciples, said, well, why don't you show us the Father? Like, I want to see what God is like. And Jesus responded, the one who's seen me has seen the Father. If, you're, if you see me, you are looking at God. The writer of Hebrews confirmed Jesus' divine identity in verse 3 of chapter 1. He wrote, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. When you think of the radiance of God's glory, I think of just the glory of God, greater and brighter than the sun, and, and this says Jesus is that. Of course, just in a moment of his ministry, you remember on a mountain, Jesus revealed his true identity to three of his closest friends. The Mount of Transfiguration, he changed before their eyes. They could. Not even look upon him, he was so bright. Jesus is the full representation of God. And it's important we see him this way. I remember several years ago, I had a guy in a, one of my Bible studies, and when he understood Jesus was God, he just blurted out. He said, you're telling me he was God? I said, yes, and it changed this guy's life. Why does it matter that we see him as God? Well, it matters for several reasons, but two of the most important ones are these. If Jesus was not God, he cannot deliver you from the penalty of your sin. He cannot save you. The one who died in our place and for our sin, the one who sacrificed himself had to be perfect. He had to be sinless. He had to be divine. 
And because he was God, he could die for the sins of the world. But a second application is that he, he can help us to realize Jesus Christ, because he's God, is everywhere. He's omnipresent and omnipotent. He can help you. We need to learn to turn to him. In addition to being God in the flesh, though, Paul says he was our sovereign creator, our king creator. Looking at verses 15 and 16 again, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and then he explains what he means by that, for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, verse 15 said Jesus is the firstborn over creation. I want you to understand the firstborn does not mean born first. In the Jewish mind, firstborn was a position of honor. There are many, many examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament, of people who were not born first, but they were called firstborn. It was a position of honor. The firstborn, whoever got that that designation got twice as much of an inheritance as anyone else. They were, they were the one that really, in a sense, were carrying on the family name, and that's exactly what Jesus is. Dr. Warren Wearsby explains it this way, the term firstborn does not refer to time, as though Christ were the first thing created, but to position. You see, some religions teach Jesus was the first thing that God created, and then Jesus created everything else. That's not what's taught in the New Testament. Jesus was before all creation. He was there in the beginning before there was a beginning. He was already there. John says that in John 1 through 3. He was already with the Father. He was not created. But he became the firstborn over creation because when he took on flesh and blood, in a sense, at that point, he was. He became part of the creation. But what does this matter for us? Well... Since he's the sovereign creator, he's worthy of our adoration. In the book of Philippians, we're told every knee should bow and every tongue needs to confess him as Lord. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. As Christians, though we have the privilege of doing it now, we bow before Christ, we worship Christ. And it's a tremendous privilege we have. But also, knowing that he's the sovereign creator means you can trust what he's done with you which is maybe hard for us sometimes to understand. King David wrote that he was knit together in his mother's womb by God. Jesus knit us together in our mother's womb. We were our unique creation, created in the image of God, and it means that we're valuable to God, that he cares about you as an individual. Like two snowflakes, they're not, and none of them are alike. You are unique and loved by God, and he created you as he did for a reason. And we celebrate that as the one who's the sovereign creator. The third thing Paul mentions is he's the heir of all things. In other words, he's going to inherit everything. I mentioned a couple weeks ago how Jesus, after he rose from the dead, said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Well, now... Paul makes the point that everything was created by Christ, but in verse 16 it says all things were created through him, and then it says for him. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 1-2, God has appointed him heir or inheritor of all things and made the universe through him. What does it mean? Well, it means everything belongs to Jesus. And one day it'll all be presented to Jesus. That's who this is. 
And I think we need to keep that in mind because occasionally I try to remind us that nothing we have is ours. You know, if you think it's yours, try to take it with you, you know. <laughs> you can't take it with you. I mentioned the bumper sticker before that I saw a few years ago that said the one who dies with the most toys still dies. It's a very depressing bumper sticker. Whoever dies with the most toys dies, you know. But it makes a good point. It belongs to Christ, which means we're to be stewards or managers of what he's entrusted to our care. That's what matters. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness with what he's given to us that we store up treasure in heaven, not on this earth, because this is a temporary thing. In the future, it's not. But one other thought related to him being the heir of all things is I don't understand this, but Paul writes that we are co-heirs with Christ. That Jesus is actually called our brother. He took on flesh and blood so he could be a brother to us. And just like the Father, Heavenly Father, gives an inheritance to the kid, his son Jesus, he's gonna give us an inheritance. I don't know, again, what all it involves, but there's some wonderful things that God has in store for us. The fourth thing that Paul notes is that he's the one who holds everything together. For some time now, scientists have tried to figure out what's holding the universe together. They don't know the answer. They thought it was dark matter, but now they're peddling back from that because they're not finding evidence that it's dark matter. The, the problem is that for things to hold together, you've got to have enough mass to create gravity. But there isn't enough. I was recently reading an article in the Daily Mail, a secular publication that said, for years now, astrophysicists have been profoundly puzzled by the fact that the total mass of all matter that can be observed or inferred in the universe, all the galaxies, stars, and clouds of dust that exist, is far from enough to provide the gravity needed to keep everything in the universe from flying apart. So the big question is, where's the gravity that holds the universe together? They go on to say, dark matter, the mysterious substance thought to glue the universe together might not exist, throwing current theories of the universe into chaos. Dark matter is thought to make up around 83% of the universe by mass and to hold together galaxies, but a scan of 400 stars near our sun found no trace of it. They don't even know what holds a cell together, why the thing doesn't fly apart. Well, Paul said this about Christ in verse 17. He said he's before all things, and by him all things hold together. Right, if Hebrews put it this way in verse three, the sun's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and then he says sustaining all things by his powerful word. The one who spoke into existence creation is the one who sustains it through just the power of his word. Be still. What does this mean for us? Well, I think sometimes we think our lives are out of control. Jesus is in control. He holds all things together. We just need to, to turn to him and remember that that's what he is. I think sometimes we need to stop, by the way, and just reflect on who is this Jesus and reach out to him because he is the one that holds everything together and he says, I want to hold your stuff together too, your mess, and yet we feel I'm losing control, I'm losing control, and we forget to turn to Jesus. The fifth description that Paul uses is he calls him the head of the church. 
Verse 18 again, he's also the head of the body, the church. I've mentioned before that the church is described in the New Testament as being like a physical body. It's like, Jesus, we're actually walking here, only you're the body. We're his hands, we're his feet, we're the voice of God in this world. That's how God has designed it. For example, he wants us to be the ones who communicate the good news about Christ. He wants our feet to be the ones that move and hands that serve. He uses his people to accomplish his purposes, but he's called the head of this body. I am not the head. The other pastors and I are not the head of this church. The board is not the head of this church. Jesus is... Our job is just to listen to what he's trying to say to us. That's why, and we don't always get it right. We just want to hear, Lord Jesus, what is it you're directing us to do? Because that's what a head does on a body, right? The head tells the rest of it what to do. I find it remarkable, by the way, because the head tells the, the arm, for example, raise up like this, you know? I, I think it's remarkable that almost at the very point in which I'm thinking, I'll tell the head to tell the hand, it does it, you know, and nothing, I can't fool the head either. Like, ah, see, I gotcha. <laughs> Get over there. Yeah, you thought I was going to do that? You can't, you know, he's directing everything. It's all, it's the head is directing it all, and you can't, you can't get ahead of that. And it's what he's trying to do with us, is lead us as a church, but also he, he's your head, and he wants to lead you. That's why we have to stay closely connected to him. Sixth thing that's true about Christ, he's the ruler over death. That's a big deal. That's a powerful thing. Death is a scary thing. Most people feel or fear death. In Colossians 1.18, we read, he's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, once again, he's called the firstborn from the dead. Doesn't mean he was the first one born from the dead. That wouldn't even make sense. No, it's in order of primacy, in authority. He's the ruler over death. He's the one that opened the door for the rest of us if you put your trust in Christ. So that he's not just the Lord of life, he's also the, the Lord of death. And this is the hope that we have as Christians. I have done a lot of funerals. I go to a lot of funerals. And I can tell you that there's a, a marked difference between funerals where there are Christians who are trusting Christ and ones that aren't. It's unbelievable the despair I have witnessed with ones who didn't know Christ. Why do we have such a hope? Well, because the tomb is empty. Jesus' tomb is empty. If you go to Israel, you'll see that the tomb is empty. There's, there's no body there. And logically, although I don't have the time to do so, I can prove to you, I believe, I could prove to you that the only explanation was a resurrection. But Paul wrote, because Jesus rose from the dead, so will you. In fact, Jesus went so far as to say that the one who trusts in me will never die. The one who trusts in me will never die. Now you're thinking, well, wait a minute, people die all the time who are Christians. No, not in God's terminology. We go from life to life. For the Christian, it's a, a mere transition. It's like walking through a doorway. Life to life. The moment you put your trust in Christ, you get eternal life. It begins the moment you believed and it lasts for, well, eternity. It lasts forever. The last description that Paul uses is the reconciler. To reconcile means to restore a, a relationship that's estranged or to bring together those who were enemies, to bring them to a point of friendship, to go from being an enemy to being a friend. This is exactly what Christ has done for us. 
Most of us know the story of Adam and Eve, how God had created everything perfect, and then they disobeyed God, and sin came into the world, but with it a curse on everything and everybody. Adam and Eve were not the only ones to die after sin came into the world. All of creation dies now. All of it is under a curse, Paul wrote. But Jesus came to reconcile. That's what he wants to do. And he doesn't just reconcile us in terms of our faith in Christ. He wants to reconcile the entire world to him. Let me read the verses again where we read in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, and here's the word, everything to himself by making peace through his blood on the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He wants to reconcile everything. Bottom line is that Jesus died, was buried and raised again from the dead so that he could fix everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden, and one day it'll all be new. Reconciliation with creation means one day there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, you're gonna get a new body. I'm looking forward to that, getting the new body. I'm just hoping it doesn't change so much that you don't recognize me because of all the improvements, or at least the ones that are needed. He's gonna fix everything, which is why it's so important we put our trust in him to receive him as our savior because that's how a person gets reconciled. Two applications here today depending on where you are spiritually. Some of you have never been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. You've never put your trust in him to be your savior and for you that's what I encourage you to do. Put your trust in Jesus to be your savior because what he did was he, he took upon himself the sin of the world on the cross. He took upon himself the judgment that you and I deserve, the penalty, the payment that you and I deserve, he took it for us so that God could declare us not guilty. God could declare us forgiven and with the sin out of the way, then our relationship with our Father, Heavenly Father, is restored. See, the sin has to be removed for that relationship, for the reconciliation to take place. Jesus paid in full the debt. The only response God is looking for from us is to put our trust in him. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever receives Jesus as their savior. So. At some point, I, I encourage all of you to at some point recognize, I know I've sinned and I can't fix it. I need, I need a savior, a deliverer. And today I wanna put my trust in Jesus because you died for me and you paid the price in full and you rose again, showing that the payment had been accepted by God. I put my trust in that. I put my trust in you. And when we do, we are forgiven of our sins. And if you've never done that again, I encourage you to do that because he wants a relationship with you and with me. If you already have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, then I encourage you to trust him. I encourage you, we've been uh, mentioning in the ATR, the program, that maybe you could be reading Colossians as we go along. I encourage you to do that, but reflect for a little bit on who exactly this Jesus is, because that will cause you to see him the way he is and then trust him more greatly. Part of the reason that our faith is not strong is we do not know this one. But what if we could really understand who he is and what he's like and the one who is willing to redeem us? That's the kind of love he has for us and we reach out to him. He is able to help us with whatever it is we are facing. Jesus is a big deal. Because of who he is, we can trust him completely. He's God in the flesh. 
He's our creator. He's the heir of all things, the one who holds everything together. He's the one that wants to lead us in our lives, the head of the church, the ruler over death, and the one who wants to reconcile him. Some of you turn to him. Others of you trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus and for all that he represents. Thank you that you love the world so much as to send him into the world to take on flesh and blood, to, to suffer as we do, to identify so much with creation that he could be called a brother of ours. And we thank you, Lord, that all of this proves your love for us and all of it proves that you're able. You're worthy of our trust. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust you more and more. Put our trust in your son who died in our place because if he was willing to do that, how much more would he be willing to do for us as we live out our lives? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.